back. Welcome to Inclusionism. It is 6.36. Wait, I'm sorry. Uh, I don't think we've adjusted our clocks for daylight savings time. <laughs> it is 5.36 uh, in the p.m. I'm your host, James Felton Keith. Uh, we're back for another Sunday of Inclusionism, where we like to say individuals are at their best when they identify with a community, and communities are only at their best when they identify all of their individuals to be overly nerdy about it. Um, this week, uh, we're welcoming uh, our guest from really around the corner. Um, David Posen is a co-editor of uh, a new book called, or slightly new book called uh, Troubling Transparency, The History and Future of Freedom of Information. Uh, he's also on faculty at Columbia Law. He has a much longer bio that we're going to post on the website at inclusionism.org. But, uh, David, thank you. Thanks, Thanks for, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, wow. I, I have so many things that I'd love to tumble down the rabbit hole with you on. Um, we were speaking briefly, folks, before we came in about uh, my nerdiness around data or information in general as sort of evidence of our our lives and, and how we get on and get along in the world or transact goods in the world. And um, a lot of David's work around information, the law of information, what it is, who has control over it, et cetera, et cetera. But this particular book is about the the history, the present, and the and the future of the Freedom of Information Act. Am I saying that right? That's right. And so before we get way deep into the weeds, what's, you know, the Freedom of Information Act for, for those who, who aren't familiar, who, who are listening in? Great. Know? So the Freedom of Information Act, or people call it FOIA. FOIA, yep. Um, turned 50 in 2000. 16 or 17, depending on how you measure. Really? Yeah. It, uh, it was <laughs> I, I usually think about it like a new thing. It, uh, it was passed in 1966. It took effect in 1967. Wow. It wasn't the world's first freedom of information law, but it was one of the first, and it's become hmm. uh, canonical around the world. And it, in a nutshell, it allows any person, and that includes citizens and non-citizens, real people and legal people, as in corporations, to request... Hmm records from the federal executive branch um, without having to give any reason for why you want the records, uh, paying only nothing or very small amounts in most cases, and the government has to turn them over within 10 to 20 days, although often it ends up taking far longer. So it's, 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 it was a radical idea at the time to, that everyone should be able to request whatever they want from, from the government, government and get it. What's the? Do they have any legal grounds for taking more than, than ten to twenty days? Or they can, they can, they, are they usually yeah. granted that? Or yeah, they, routinely uh, agencies <laughs> they can request an extension. Yeah. Uh, in, in necessary cases, uh, one extension. Uh, beyond that, mm -hmm. the, it's just emerged as the practice over time that sure. courts let agencies go on and on for sometimes years. Yeah. Actually, I myself have a four request. That's over seven years old right yeah. now and hasn't been fulfilled. Um, and, and it's not actually realistic for many of these agencies, which receive tens of thousands of these requests a year oh, they do. to comply quickly <laughs> in cases where Congress has given them not enough money to do so. Sure. And the requests are complex and so on. So, uh, yeah, I think as we will often on this show talk about uh, you know, the philosophy of, of policy and, and things we could do or should do or would want to do in an ideal, you know, technological world. Um, I think the interesting thing about FOIA and what popped out to me about you all's uh, book and, and pursuing this topic at all is there is some operational, you know, rigor necessary to make yeah. any of this stuff real. And we rarely talk about that. We talk about, oh, we can do this and that with government. And then you go, well, well, can we? Do we have enough manpower? And so the first thing that comes to mind when you mention any of this is is you're, you're first sort of talking about manpower. They just can't meet the capacity yeah. uh, for requests. Um, we didn't talk about this earlier, but now I'm just sort of getting new ideas. Uh, are there ways to do this? better like in a more technological yeah. like can we blockchain it yeah. for all those people <laughs> i'm not one of these blockchain utopians by the way but you know are there are there better ways usually government offices yeah. are old you know yeah. i've been in a lot of government it's it's bad 
I, I, I don't know enough about <laughs> blockchain to, to run with that. Oh, but, uh, yeah, that was a, I didn't mean that. But I do, yeah. I do think FOIA is, is very inefficient. Yeah. Um, at the time that it was created in the 60s, records weren't digital in the way they are now. Ah, that's um, yeah. uh, And there are roughly 100 FOIA offices around the government. Uh, it's very decentralized and oh, really? cumbersome. And a, a lot of the records that people want from FOIA um, could just be posted online proactively. You wouldn't have to file your request if it's not responded to, potentially lawyer up to go to court to ask for it. You know, it's, it, it is uh, demanding uh, to, to really pursue a FOIA request with is, any you think that's with deliberate any that they're uh, not doing that? I, I, think it's, I think it's an artifact of the time it was created when um, there was no possibility of posting online for free in a widely accessible manner um, all of these records that people might want. There were reading rooms where you could physically go to a government agency if you lived in the area. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, obviously, it didn't work for most Americans. <laughs> and so, so they evolved this request and respond model. Sure. But today, in the digital age, um, I think it makes more sense to have that be a backup and to have proactive posting of information online accessible to everyone be the norm. Hmm. Uh, in some ways, FOIA is... is um, reflects the limits of the technology at the time it was created. Right, because those processes are yeah. still in place. Yeah. And so, hmm, now, well, now you make me think, I think this segues right into, you know, something you all touch on uh, more than a bit in the book, but uh, this idea of open government. Yeah. Is, uh, is that even a, a possibility? Is, can, can government be, is, let me back up. Yeah. And is government open? And we'll start there. Government is more open than it's ever been sure, in the past. Sure. Um, but, uh, Shout out to government. <laughs> I, uh, there, it's complicated. The, the parts of government are now quite yeah. open. But if we look at FOIA to keep with our the, the biggest transparency law we have, sure. uh, what's interesting is the distribution of where it has bite and where it doesn't. So FOIA is very weak when it comes to the national security agencies and yeah. the law enforcement agencies. Yeah. If you want to get information about what the CIA or the NSA are doing or about what the FBI is doing. It's very hard uh, under FOIA. They have powerful exemptions sure. from the law. Um, much easier to get information about the Environmental Protection Agency, sure. say. Um, and, and impossible under our FOIA to get information about private companies, no matter how powerful they are. You can't file a FOIA request to get info about Facebook. Well, they're not government, They're not right? government. Not government. But, but just, so... so but the overall picture is uh, we, we end up having a lot of access to some parts of government, sure. much less to others, much less to the private sector. Sure. And, uh, and, and it influences journalism and it influences our perceptions of what's broken and what's not. No, it's not. Yeah. Um, and, and at least from some – if you really think that the most violent arms of the state you yeah. know, are, are where we should have the most scrutiny, then you might be quite dismayed by – what FOIA actually provides. Sure. So, well, that said, I mean, you uh, well, it took us a few different places. Obviously, I think everyone, when I was growing up, was scared of Big Brother. There's even yeah. a, a popular TV show called Big Brother. And I used to think it was with, um, there was another scripted TV show. I think it was also called like Big Brother something. And there was a guy in it who was everyone's big brother. You remember, I can't remember the name of the show. I'm really having a brain fart right here, right now. But when I first heard about Big Brother, this show where they have everyone living in the house, oh, yeah, yeah. I thought it was this other, like, Big Brother Jack or Jake okay. or whatever his name was. Anyway, I'm going left field here. But the point is, everyone used to be scared about the government looking in on yeah. you, and they used to be scared about, you know, violations of the Fourth Amendment. Yeah. But now, um, you know, the information that we disclose is almost voluntary, and I think more folks are worried about these corporations that seem to be larger than government. You know, the Fangs, the mm. you know, Facebook, Amazon's, uh, Microsoft, Google, you name it. Mm. Um, I don't really know what the S is for. It can be Spotify, but anyway, um, maybe it's just pluralizing the other ones. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. See, I went way too far with that. Um, but, but, um, what does FOIA? Is FOIA just federal? The, or, or is the, it state and the, municipal? Every, every state has its own analog at this point. So okay. all 50 states have their own freedom of information law, sometimes called the open records. But Act. it's not equal. Everyone's not. They're, they're, they differ in, in, in various. Yeah, they differ in various ways, but they're all um, loosely similar to the federal model. Sure. Um, so we and and and, uh, and all I think every advanced democracy in the world now has some equivalent. So it's it's been this 
major legal export of the U.S. government. And so, and what sort of is it the objective or or ambition of the federal FOIA or the sort of federation of of state sized FOIAs to have some power over for profit corporations? Um, is that not not really in the U.S. Not so much. There, there in some states, there's limited ability to get at private company information when they contract with government enough. Mm. Um, but in, in other countries, I'm thinking in particular of South Africa had a, a major reform within the last two decades, you can directly seek information from sufficiently powerful private companies uh, under, their the FO, uh, yeah, under their open records law. But, but in the U.S. at the federal level, even if a company does a lot of business with the government or acts in a quasi-governmental fashion and sure. is really powerful in whatever respect, you, you can't seek info directly from them. Yeah, I lived in South Africa for years. I used to work for ESCOM Holdings, the uh, state-owned energy company. But they were, I mean, they, they acted as a, as a separate company, but, but they, or they are, rather, but everyone looks at them as really an arm of the government. Yeah. They produce all of the coal-fired energy there. They're in trouble, actually, right now in the news. The South African economy is being killed a bit because of the lack of what ESCOM can produce. But uh, I think part of the scrutiny that comes from them is there's just so much information available about them in the news. There's a whole mm -hmm. news beat yeah. about ESCOM, which is why they were bringing Americans in. We were managing a lot of the consultants that they had to bring in because they couldn't find the confidence to gain the capital to pay to build the talent that they wanted to in the country, which is a whole other, you know, crazy scenario within itself. So, all right, so we can't do that here. No, and, and, and speaking of the, the media, you know, the, yeah. the coverage you're describing of that company in South Africa, um, I've written some about how it used to be the case that the muckracking journalists in the yeah. progressive era, the early 1900s, were just as likely, if not more likely, to go after private corporations uh, in, their, in their reporting. Sure. And there's been some writing about how mainstream journalism has moved away from reporting on corporate abuses and corporate concerns toward focusing on government problems. And that, that's, that's, um, that may reflect a lot of causes, but one of them, I think, is mm. FOIA and U.S. law just gives journalists a tool. If you want to ferret out information about wrongdoing or overspending or whatever it is at a government agency, you've got FOIA, you can file a request and pursue it. Mm. You've got nothing comparable on the, on the private sector side, and so you get channeled away from looking at powerful corporations toward looking at government. And um, there, there's evidence, too, that the journalism that wins prizes mm. uh, tends to use open records law to go after government. And, of course, there's a lot of value in finding bad things in government. But, yeah. um, but the concern is that there's an asymmetry here where we end up uh, obsessively focusing on public sector issues, even though corporations exercise tremendous power uh, at the same time, and we're not looking at them with the same uh, uh, level of scrutiny. Yeah, I do feel like we've privatized the, you know, some of the work of government, especially in the past 20 years, as um, some of these technological juggernauts have emerged and they facilitate so much of our work. You yeah. know, there's obviously an argument going on right now about Amazon versus Microsoft with regards to who delivers IT services to the federal government and, um, you know, and, and, and that whole, you know, shebang. But, uh, and I think Trump is going, he's going to not use Amazon's AWS because he doesn't like Jeff Bezos because mm. Jeff owns the Washington Post, which I think is probably too much. I'm not mad at Jeff Bezos and his vest and that he's cool now and he cut his hair. I get it, man. You know, I think Michael Jordan was cooler when he cut the hair off too. But... <laughs> He, the fact that he owns the this the second most noble news organization in the United States uh, is slightly problematic, and I don't want to agree with Trump on anything uh, ever. Uh, I feel like somebody may send me a, a nasty email about that. I think I, that may have been even too kind for someone who lives in Harlem. But um, so is is the. Is there an effort underway to expand FOIA? I mean, are you all Not exploring really. any yeah. of that um, and some it, of the new stuff that you're writing and researching? Or, yeah, There are a lot of proposals out there to make FOIA work better for um, on all kinds of dimensions. One, like, I'm like, what are a few? Yeah, yeah. okay. So, yeah. so um, 
Uh, some would have it have more teeth when it comes to getting national security or law enforcement info. There's no political mm-hmm. will for that right now, but that's often proposed. Um, law enforcement, def- definitely. I don't know about there, yeah. There, there are local movements, much. right, to get sure. to get lots more info on the police, but not not at the federal level. The, yeah. um, uh, another set of issues is around just getting FOIA to work better for ordinary people. So we, we haven't talked yet about how uh, at many agencies in the U.S. government, yeah, it's commercial requesters, private corporations who dominate the requester pool. So over two-thirds of the requests for records filed at the Securities and Exchange Commission or the Food and Drug Administration are filed by uh, for-profit entities. And and they're crowding out. Yeah, I was going to say, but what does that mean for if I wanted, for the regular guy? You're going to go down the the line. You know, your request is going to be behind all the others that have come in. So it's going to take longer. Um, Those companies can credibly threaten to litigate if their requests aren't complied with in a timely manner, they, they may sue, right. and they have the money and the lawyers to do that effectively. And so they're going to get prioritized for that reason as well. Which is a whole strategy to put junk in the pipeline. It, it, well, and is, it, yeah. well it's, yeah, in some of these cases, um, the companies are regulated by the agencies, yeah. and they want to get leverage over the agencies. They want to learn what the agencies are up to, both to respond, maybe learn what competitors are up to if they can, and mm. just get... Uh, um, a weapon they can use against the agencies if they're going to face tough regulation. So in a lot of ways, um, not only does FOIA not touch the corporations, you can't get info about them. Uh, it gives them a tool to go after government uh, themselves and, um, and to the expense sometimes of ordinary people who, who want to learn for more public-minded reasons what's going on. So this is, a, this is an example of <clears throat> not only transparency sort of junking up a pipeline where the little guy yeah. can participate – but potentially harming the, the, the regulatory teeth that government has. Yes. Yeah. And what's, so we were we were talking earlier, folks, about um, uh, what's the quote? What's the Brandeis uh, quote? Yeah. Uh, the, if in the transparency world, uh, everyone quotes Brandeis: "Sunlight is the best of disinfectants." See, and I felt like that was something that my mother used to say. <laughs> but we were talking about how. It doesn't make any sense. Early. <laughs> Sunlight's actually a terrible disinfectant. <laughs> Alcohol is much better. You know, so it's it's not even correct on its own terms. And a big theme of the book <laughs> is yeah. is transparency often um, uh, has unintended consequences. Yeah. Uh, in this case, we're just talking about empowers corporations, not regular people. Mm. And it's it's it just can't be taken for granted that more transparency is going to lead to better democracy, more justice, whatever value you're trying you're trying to achieve. Yeah, no, I I like that you bring this up because it makes me think about well eating some of my own words even uh as I regularly consider a lot of I usually do this rant about I'm a millennial. I'm this kid the other week at a political rally that we had called me the oldest millennial. And I appreciate <laughs> it. I appreciate it. But uh I was doing this rant about millennials versus boomers. Uh, which I think you're probably somewhere in the, you're in the middle. You're not, you're, yeah. not either one, right? I think that's right. So you're free here. But I talked about the difference between truth and transparency, and mm-hmm. I feel like mm-hmm. the the boomer sort of ethos was truth, truth, truth. It was in all their music. If we both leave this table and talk about what happened here, outside from the podcast that'll be published, and we tell the truth about what happened, it'll be two totally different truths. So I think it's mm-hmm. a bit subjective and. Anyway, in this rant, I talked about transparency being this opportunity to really see folks for for who they are. But then it brought me back to at least your comment earlier, brought me back to how often the oversimplification of what's really going on for rhetorical purposes can it can come back to bite us. Um, I think we're seeing that right now in the the modern uh, with a political lexicon and how everything needs to be reduced and everything needs to be transparent. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's a bit tragic. Yeah, I mean, the, the, a theme of the book is uh, that transparency often doesn't deliver on what people want from it. And it, for a variety of reasons, it sure. can be that it's weaponized by um, companies or other people who want to oppose whatever's happening for political reasons sure. against them. I have lots of stories on that if you want to go into it. Yeah. Uh, but also, also just... Um, uh, the transparency reformers of the 60s and 70s who gave us our major open government laws mm. may have been naive about the way it would play out, even when it's not weaponized. Um, for example, it was assumed that if you open up 
committee meetings in Congress, people could see how the sausage is made. They would trust government more. Mm. Um, there's no evidence that opening up government in any country I know of has produced more public trust. Uh, and on the contrary, there's some evidence that the groups that end up getting most empowered mm. by that seemingly you know, great democratic reform are business lobbyists and other powerful groups that can systematically send people to sit in every meeting and hold you know, legislators to account. Um, and, it's, and so there, there, there's a lot of reason to think that transparency shouldn't be fetishized, yeah. shouldn't be maximized. Um, it should just be considered as a means to an end, potentially a really important means, but we got to keep our eye on what we really want, which, end, whether it's yeah. democracy or justice or whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know. We could go in, in so many different ways with that. Uh, but, yeah, I think actually too much transparency for the lay person, not these professionals, for instance, who work for corporations who are paid to sit in uh, in audience um, at these government sessions. I think it can be a bit a bit traumatizing. Just to make it more, you know, reduce it a bit and make it a, a bit more cultural, I was asked, uh, I did an interview with this uh, magazine called Afropunk um, with this British white writer who was asking me about uh, police shootings and body cams and how, our, you know, our, she, well, she just asked me, uh, were, were the numbers up? Were, was there more violence? I said, no, actually, there's less violence. We're living in a more safe time than we've ever been. She's like, oh, and so that's a good thing. I said, well, not necessarily because the transparency is actually a hell of a lot more traumatic. So I think even though the transparency is up, the trauma is up because every time something happens, we know about it mm -hmm. and we have to relive it on Twitter or on Instagram or in the news yeah. somewhere over and over again. And it's not just those cases. I think, you know, our general paranoia about government uh, now is magnified and government is more uh, media than it ever was before because now we're sort of productizing every person mm -hmm. uh, behind every nameplate uh, and every organized body to be, you know, one side or the other of a, of a, a given issue. And um, we're sort of always at this war of ideas that really if only a few of us, if that, are prepared to uh, participate in. Yeah. yeah. Well, the body cam example um, makes me think of another general point here, I think, is that transparency is almost never enough on its own mm -hmm. to get wherever you want to go. So body cameras may make a lot of sense for a lot of reasons, um, but if, you, if, if the end goal is reducing police violence, say, or yeah. police abuse, um, you probably need body cams plus, you know, plus... Um, other accountability mechanisms, uh, plus somebody who's actually reviewing what the body cameras show in a regular mm. way, um, plus uh, laws that enable liability for the police officers who, who do things that are wrong. You, you just need a whole, you need a whole yeah. complex. And, and one, another lesson I think uh, you can take away from the 60s and 70s reforms is it's often seductive mm. to just do the transparency reform because it's cheap. You, you can get a broad pol political coalition around it who can yeah. be against openness, um, but it, it's uh, it, it's just not 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 sufficient. And it, uh, I'll give another example in the criminal justice area. Uh, a few jurisdictions within the last um, period have made a reform called Open File. North Carolina, I think, was the leader here, and uh, the idea is when someone's uh, a criminal defendant is facing. Um, prosecution. Yeah, that the prosecution should make available to the to the to that defendant, well before trial, everything that the prosecution has on him or her. Oh yeah, so, we see yeah. that in in TV yeah. shows all the time. So now. yeah, yeah. So th it, is, it was it was a, it was a kind of breakthrough reform. It was heralded by by everyone, especially on the left. It's going to level the playing field. <laughs> Defense, they're not going to be they're not going to be surprised at trial, and they're going to know whether to even go to trial or cut a plea because they're going to know what the evidence is against them yeah. and how strong it is, and they can rebut, and it's going to help uh, defendants. In those jurisdictions, the evidence is now in about the initial wave of these open file reforms. When you just do open file and nothing else, it doesn't seem to actually help defendants. What they really need are lawyers who can um, who can use open file on their behalf to to empower them. Um, so you actually need a couple open file with more money for indigent defense to make it make it effective. And it's like that everywhere. Open, transparency needs to be paired with other stronger medicine. No, you made me think about yeah, infrastructure, lawyers. Those are warm bodies. Yeah. Uh, two steps. So let's 
I'm going to take a really quick break and come right back in, in two seconds because this is... Anyway, I, I want to go somewhere with this really quick. Uh, we'll be right back. Do you wonder where you fit in these changing technological times? Is the system excluding you or including you? I'm James Felton Keith, inviting you to tune in to Inclusionism, a new code of equity, every Sunday at 5.30 p.m. I'll interview leading activists, academics, diplomats, and business people about what it truly means to be included in the 21st century. That's Inclusionism, every Sunday at 5.30 p.m. on WHCR 90.3 FM, The Voice of Harlem. All right, we're back. I saw uh, two calls come in, but uh, if you could just uh, email the website or go to inclusionism.org, we'll be sure to, to uh, post the questions with the with the podcast after this. But um, David was going somewhere before we before we took that uh, that brief break around sort of the way I interpret it is there's no sort of one one shot answer yeah. to to a lot of these problems, and I think that the way people talk about transparency. Um, is with that sunlight analogy in yeah. Q of, well, if we just add this one little process, then we can forget about it and move to the next thing. And I get it. You know, elected officials, legislative bodies are overwhelmed with problems to remedy. But uh, but it, this seems hyper important as it affects every piece of government, potentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and seems like it needs to be this sort of problem that is met with hyper complexity and infrastructure building. So earlier you were talking about um, um, how how some of these solutions should be met with sort of more boots on the ground, more lawyers, more more people with the with the power to litigate. But my question for you is: Is that even feasible? Is it can we afford yeah. not yeah. not just can we afford the budgets? Do those people exist? Are so, we graduating enough lawyers who, I, but <laughs> who know the law? But sometimes it doesn't require that. Uh, mm. I mean, it depends on the area. Sure. But, um, uh, sometimes you just need stronger regulation of other, just straight out prohibitions mm-hmm. on behaviors or taxes on bad behaviors mm. rather than just expose those behaviors. So let me give a concrete example. Um, concerns in the 2000s um, uh, went up and up about predatory lending behaviors around home loans, yeah. credit cards and the like. So yeah. um, once the non-transparency lo- solution would be uh, ban certain behaviors, criminalize certain behaviors, mm-hmm. um, impose steep fines on certain behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, the transparency lo- solution, which was used to a large extent by the U.S. government in the 2000s, was um, just make more available to potential home buyers the, the more information about the terms, and uh, have more disclosure. We weren't and, and, reading that though. Yeah, yeah. it turns, it turns right. out. But no I bought can, a house. I don't remember reading. No one anything can understand it, right? No yeah. one can. And, and, and <laughs> the very people you most want to help, even if they could understand it, can't necessarily comparison shop for a better lender. They're vulnerable consumers, regardless. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so there, you know, I don't, I don't know. If we need boots on the ground and more people, just um, a clearer sense of the kind of behaviors we want and don't want, and um, some some stronger tools to go after the stuff we don't want. Yeah, oh, that's such a complex issue because I, I know just uh, as someone who's in politics, the 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 very next thing you're met with is is this question of access and what access looks like. And you go, well, access is some form of, of transparency, <clears throat> whether that's right or wrong. And then there's a a small, you know, delegation of constituents who don't necessarily represent the masses, but they look like the masses. And whether they know or not, um, whether they're, you know, trying to get you off your game or not, they'll advocate for some some vote of transparency to, to show that uh, that they have access, that they have agency, when really it's going to hurt the majority hmm. around them. And I even think of, to give you a concrete example, I'm thinking about um, um, Obama's Jobs Act, which was, didn't have much to do with FOIA and transparency, but it was really this interesting conversation around who gets to be an investor in a new company mm. and do relatively poor people, not people with $1, but maybe people with $100,000, do they get to participate? Because before that, only people with a million dollars got to participate in investing in sort of in, in IPOs and new companies in general. And even when we come back to um, these issues with regards to FOIA, it's about 
the cultural sentiment around who gets to participate. Mm. And that's why I really think uh, the more I'm talking to you, the more I'm backing away from the idea that transparency is a pathway to trust. Because it seems like there's a broader trust that's, that doesn't exist there. Where even with this transparency, it's uh, it seems like it's in no way a, a, a path. Um, even though now it's a buzzword, which is a problem yeah, because yeah. it has a brand. Yeah. And when things yeah. have a brand, uh, they're usually, they're co-opted. They're too easy to reach out for and say, well, I'll bring this to the table and now I have this shiny thing. So you all can agree with me. You can understand I'm fighting for you, right? Um, so, I mean, so what can we do? What, is, what does the balance look like from an yeah. infrastructural standpoint? If, if, we, if, prohibition, if prohibitions do proliferate, um, how do we justify those to people who feel like they live in an unjust system? And um, and they're never going to get anything good out of it. I mean, again, it, it really depends on the area, but you, yeah. I think where you would use them, you would justify it as better protection than you're going to get from transparency. You know, so it's so about protection. You're worried, yeah, word. you're worried yeah. about um, in the consumer protection area. You're worried about um, unfair uh, uh, practices by lenders, or you know, sure. then, then uh, um, uh, I think the way to inspire trust is and and get support around the prohibitions is justify them as necessary. Um, to, to stop abusive behavior and transparency is insufficient. But I, d- I don't want to be beating up on transparency too much. I just I think the key point is just to sure. see it as a means to an end and be realistic about what it can and can't achieve and always have a multi-pronged strategy where transparency is just a piece of how you're attacking a social problem. So you're worried about police violence, body camps might be a piece of that, but you've got to have other uh, other building blocks. You know, whether and right. uh, and you're worried about uh, to keep with the predatory lending example, you're worried about that. Uh, transparency could be a piece, but just a piece. Uh, uh, you mentioned uh, President Obama's Jobs Act. I know better um, some other transparency examples from his administration that, that speak to this concern about unintended consequences. So, yeah, no, for um, yeah. in the corporate area, in, in your yeah. area. So, he, um, there was a debate at one point about how to get more diversity on corporate boards. Mm. Um, I think I remember that. So think, yeah. they have a transparency solution, which, which of course, is, is uh, seductive because it's cheap and easy. Yeah. Um, companies are just supposed to provide more disclosure in their annual filings about how diverse their boards are or mm. aren't. Um, that's in contrast to a country like Norway, which just has, has quotas. You know, there, there are certain diversity targets you have to hit. Oh, really? Um, and the Obama-era rule, the disclosure rule, seems to have had no effect. On, on, on diversity on corporate boards. Yeah, no, it you know, hasn't. Yeah. And likewise, they, had, they were worried about uh, runaway CEO pay. Mm. Uh, CEOs of companies making huge amounts of money so their workers aren't getting it. And there was a debate about do you cap CEO pay? Or, or, and um, they decided just for the transparency solution instead, yeah. which is you have to disclose more about CEO pay and on all of its you know, aspects, again, in your annual reports. And CEO pay went up afterwards um ceos could look around the corner and say up ah, <laughs> the, the ceo of that company over there is actually getting a little more than me and, and then go back to their boards and totally. so um if you want to keep me uh so it turned out to be you know extremely naive yeah uh, uh, to think that transparency alone could solve both of those problems yeah no i remember uh i worked for hp <clears throat> towards the the end of the obama administration and um mark hurd was leaving out as our ceo and he sort of I felt like he broke the company on purpose to move over to Oracle. I, he was a savage in the IT industry. I, I, I used to bring him up a lot. I felt like I should stop because he just passed away, and now I feel like it's a bit wrong. But uh, I really felt like he he did a lot of damage to, to his own gain mm. in the industry. But uh, he was a great example of how you would leverage the pay of other CEOs to meet yours. When some of these CEOs, like Michael Dell, for instance, own the company. And so if you're a new CEO coming in and you don't have as many shares as Michael Dell, it's hard to, you'll never run out of an argument to your board that you should have a pay increase because mm. you're competing with one of the top five richest yeah. guys around. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or, or Bill Gates or, you know, whoever it is. Um, but Michael was still in play at that point. You know, I think Bill was transitioning away. And that's what make, made the argument ridiculous. Um, and I agree with you. I think transparency alone, they think that they can shame winners out of winning. Uh, and I don't mean winners mm. in a sort of a noble uh, sense or that you know, these people should, should be sought after. I don't. I think a lot of these folks are, are despicable. But I do think you have to sort of meet fire with fire, which is why I'm a fan of, at least from that corporate standpoint, giving people a direct equity stake. I think we should break the shareholder idea and create a new class of 
stakeholders um, where you just absolutely cannot uh, transact that much capital to a single individual without hitting off all the other individuals that are owed a piece. But um, but to that case, yeah, I guess, you know, transparency backfires a bit. I like what you were saying earlier about um, the corporate strategists of the world leveraging the transparency that's coming out of government to hold them accountable. There's one TV show that I like on Showtime called Billions, Mm. and I don't know if you've seen it. No. It's basically this eternal war against uh, an attorney general and a a hedge fund manager. Uh, And there's like a wife in the middle. The wife of the attorney general is the chief uh, psychologist at this big hedge fund where people need to perform well. And they're constantly trading information back, trying to one-up each other Mm. so that one can take the other one down. Mm. And it's because of their bunch of sort of FOIA instances in the programming uh, where information is just free-flowing in the process of discovery, in the process of litigation. This is not like secret envelopes passing back and forth. Um, And so that said, uh, I guess we've sort of covered the possibility that trust comes from somewhere other than transparency. And so if that is the case, you know, I can't help but think about um, this presidential yeah. uh, uh, inquiry, this this impeachment that, you know, if, if I was in, in, in the Congress, I would be gung-ho about this impeachment. Uh, I think I've made more than a few videos and, and launched them out like, Nancy, we need to do this now. I saw her a few weeks ago in, in Midtown, like, we need to do this now. She gave... Myself and a, and a larger crowd of people are run down of how they were going through this process and, and, and what it looked like. Um, and there's a lot of conversation about will this process be transparent? Yeah. Should it? Yeah. What does transparency mean? I mean, how do you see any of this So at the House or in the Senate? Yeah. Um, um, well, yeah. one jumping off point might be here that the former Senator Jeff Flake, mm-hmm. Republican from Arizona, said uh, yeah. uh, some weeks, I think late September, said a very interesting thing. He mm-hmm. said that at least 35, that's the exact word, at least 35 Repub- yeah. Republican senators would vote to remove Trump in an impeachment trial in the Senate if, if, and only if, yeah. the vote were in secret. And people, that, that was interesting, it was provocative, <laughs> but people moved right on. Like that's, um, uh, uh, and, and then, you know, that, that fell out of the news cycle within 24 hours. What's interesting there is, the, uh, the Senate impeachment proceedings could be secret. Uh, yeah. uh, th- th- there are a lot of tough issues there, but in fact, in our history, the Senate rules allow for secrecy in deliberations around impeachment, and and it's been used. The Andrew Johnson deliberations were in 18, when he was you know, the 1860s when he was impeached were, were secret. In, in, in President Clinton's impeachment, a lot of people forget. I was going to say, what about Nixon and Clinton, or no, just Clinton? Let's... Didn't get there in the Senate with Nixon, but with Clinton. There were, um, I think, the final three days of deliberations were closed door, and I think at two other points in the impeachment proceedings, uh, one was a deposition and one was another debate, they closed the door. No yeah. TV, no access, and um, not even a written transcript. So um, so actually secrecy is, is often used in impeachment proceedings because we want some independence of judgment, some freedom of thought. I was going to say why. The, like what's an yeah. example of when you say independence of judgment from, yeah. who, from, from the people? So okay, that well, it's it complicated. The, yeah. So so seed holders. Right. Yeah. So I mean, it it might be from the person who's being impeached. If if you, I mean, like we the people, but yeah, it could yeah, be from that yeah, person it could, too. It could be, you know, for fear of retaliation from right. uh, a powerful president who's known to go after his critics. If if, if the, so if, if the, the effort to remove him should fail, sure. Um, but of course, in this case, it's also I think um, from a, a faction within their party and within the country. Uh, that is passionate in favor of the person who's, you know, being investigated, potentially yeah. being removed. And, um, you know, you you have a weird situation now where polls at least suggest that a majority of Americans think Trump's behavior was egregious and uh, potentially worthy of removal. You have a, you have a, you know, extreme hardcore base of the Republican Party yeah. that will, you know, brook no criticism of the president and the Republican senators are, are terrified of that base and what it will mean for their primaries. Yeah. So what what is more democratic, you know, a situation where they're captured by that pro-Trump base or a situation where they're more responsive to their broader constituency and the country, not to mention their conscience? It's a, di- it's a difficult balance. I mean, if you're a senator, your base 
And you have a big city in your state. Your base is not just a Trump supporter. I mean, that, and that is the big difference between your them party, and, and your party base. congressmen. Yeah. Right. Um, and, I, and I totally understand, you know, the House reps repping their, you know, uh, hyper-local district uh, of about 720,000 or so people, even though in places like this in Manhattan where we take the census poorly, we have more like 850,000, but that's another conversation. But there are no senators who you know have that little of you know skin in the yeah. game they're they're in play i think the interesting thing here because well you're even making me think about things i hadn't thought about with regards to the senate and this impeachment um but i feel like th that would be a mitch mcconnell decision not a chuck schumer decision yeah i mean the rules get or am i wrong get complicated no you yeah. the, um uh i believe it's the case that uh the the chair it would be the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court who, who presides over the trial in the Senate. Yeah, uh, can um, uh, can rule that that secrecy will be used. This is, Chief Justice Rehnquist did this in the Clinton proceedings, mm. um, just applying ordinary Senate rules. So a ruling from the chair, someone can file a, submit a motion to get secrecy. But uh, if people want it to be open, um, there's a provision of the Constitution called the Journal Clause that suggests that. You, it would take a four-fifths vote, actually, um, to close it if people want, if other senators want it open, which is unlikely to happen. But That's a lot, yeah. Um, so, but, you know, in the Clinton case, they negotiated at the beginning of the impeachment trial in the Senate how much secrecy they would use. And they, they settled on some, you know, with, with, for some of the final deliberations. And that, we're still that, not there yet. Yeah, we're not there yet. But it the, could happen. But, you know, if, talk about... Um, sunlight not being the best of disinfectants, by the way. <laughs> if, if, if your view is that Trump is the is the disease on the body politic, you know, then, and if Jeff Flake is right, then sunlight is exactly what's keeping things toxic. It you know? is. <laughs> I feel like the Republican Party has been battered by him, and it is sort of, it, it makes me think about, you know, hiding, you know, people who are, you know, people who are being, you know, bullied or, you know, are being <laughs> aggressively pursued by, you know, tyrants. I'm, I'm just, I'm thinking about you know, mostly like domestic abuse situations. I do feel like there are a lot of Republicans who want their party back. I've said this way too many times on this show, and I and I, I feel crazy saying it. You know, I'm just wondering, like, where are the neocons, and do we miss them? <laughs> you know, I, it, we're, in a, we're in a really uh, ridiculous time. I will say this. I do like the way <clears throat> the proceedings have been negotiated in the House. Yeah, yeah. And again, I think even though, you know, you brought up the number that we're just over the 50 percent mark where the majority of Americans uh, think that the president should be impeached. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that that number will tick up because of the way the House has negotiated in these proceedings. And because obviously we, we have a majority, we being the Democrats, um, more will be exposed. Yeah. And hopefully maybe Jeff Flake and, and his friends can get those 30 U.S. senators to so, come over. Um, so, so I would say some amount of openness, transparency about what's happening is key to building public support, letting people know. Of course, yeah. it's not, you know, juries in criminal trials deliberate in secret. Um, and some people like that analogy for, for the Senate in an impeachment trial. But mm. unlike criminal jurors, we want, you know, senators must be accountable to, to the public. So you want some publicity. But on the... Um, uh, on the secrecy side and how it might, in limited amounts, uh, yeah. be useful for having real, authentic, and honest deliberations and not just political grandstanding. Um, you, you notice that stunt, I'm sure, was it last week or the week before, by some Republicans in the House storming the closed oh, yeah, committee yeah. session. You yeah. know, uh, and um, it was I've, great stunt. That, you know, it was an effort to delegitimate anything that might be happening in the impeachment inquiry just on the basis of not being open. Even though they were given um, access. But yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, and, um, but so they're, they're kind of leveraging transparency uh, uh, status as a brand, as you called it. Sure. You know, the, um, uh, and diverting attention from the fact that some limited amount of closed-door deliberations are completely normal in, in, in these settings and maybe, you know, maybe a healthy part of the process. Other countries, by the way, I might add, um, when they do impeachments of their head of state, no confidence, or, or the equivalent, no confidence votes yeah. in the head of state by the legislature are almost always held by secret ballot. That was true in the U.K. when they had one on Theresa May recently. Yeah. Um, it was true in South Africa on, on Jacob Zuma. Yeah. Uh, and those bodies— I remember that, both of yeah, those, yeah. Yeah, and, oh and impeachment God, yeah. investigations are often uh, 
run by more independent bodies than, than the legislature like, like we have here. So the idea that there should be some independence for people investigating serious charges against the head of state, sure. um, you know, in comparative terms, isn't crazy at all. I mean, even the, even the, the investigation, the FBI um, investigation, you know, the president's attack of the legitimacy of the FBI as a yeah. body was crass, I think, even treasonous and brilliant at the same time. Yeah. And it shows what a what a a, a cavalier man with, with no regard for the institutions that we built, what they can do with real transparency. And it just makes me think about a time that we're going into where everything is available, you know, on the internet or, you know, yeah. When it's just it's just available. Um yeah. Oh that, no. That gets yeah. to another 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 funny thing about yeah. the Brandeis quote. Yeah. Which again is ubiquitous in in this area. Sunlight is the best of disinfectants. Um, which uh, while everyone wants some amount of sunlight where they live. Yeah. You know, if you have unremitting sunlight twenty four <laughs> hours a day, you're not living in in paradise. You're living in Death Valley. This, you know, the plants don't flourish in that ecosystem. They die. So so everyone wants some combination of shade and sunlight and. Uh, yeah. What's true of us as individuals in our lived environment is true of, I think, political bodies as well. If Brandeis was, I mean, he'd be rolling over in his grave right now. If he was like, I'm just being remembered for that. You know, he's got schools named after him, et cetera. But no, uh, I'm with you. Um, yeah, you know, we, we can be killed for those those few zingers that, that live yeah, on yeah, forever. I don't want to reduce Brandeis to No, that, yeah. But, yeah, but, <laughs> I, but I hear you. Yeah. Uh, so, but he, and he was, uh, by the way, he was realistic in his own work about what transparency could and couldn't achieve. Oh, and, totally. I'm a fan. Yeah. And like, he was mainly focused yeah. on corporate transparency. He made me want to go to law school. I didn't go to law school just because of, I think, my age. Where the, I feel like what we were taught coming out of undergrad for people my age who you know, had these sort of opportunities available to us, it was either you went to B school or law school depending on the economic cycle. Mm-hmm. Whether it's up or down, that was where your opportunity was. You, know, you go to law school if you need to clean up a mess. You go to B school if you want to ride your way into mm-hmm. a mess, and we were we were riding in at that point. I was just pre the um, the crisis, but everyone I knew was a day younger or waited a minute to go. They uh, they went to law school. You're the oldest man. <laughs> <right now. laughs> yeah, we. Uh, anyway, um, so look, this I feel like we can go a bunch of different directions yeah. with this. We only have a, a few minutes uh, left, so I just wanted to. I want to know what. Well, number one, thanks for thanks for stopping by and, and hanging out. I, I hope we can do this more because I feel like this is a broader topic that we really need to tumble down the rabbit hole on. I mainly just like talking to lawyers because I'm trying to figure out. I feel like you all are the tool that we can use to fight, you know, for our democracy, but even more broadly than that, for our humanity. Uh, I'm obsessed with the idea of personhood in these digital times. And um, I'm always trying to look for a new avenue mm. to shorten the distribution of value back to myself. And I feel like uh, making ethical arguments under the law is the best way to do that. So um, that said, what are you what's new? What are you working on? What do we need to know about? I like to think about you all's papers and the books you're writing, like new album releases. Like mm. what what new hotness should we be paying attention to? What's coming out of the the train of thought of, at Columbia Law. All right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it in this space because I could go in sure. too, too many directions. I mean, Other could, stuff I'm working we on. We can but, play with um, that. Yeah. Uh, but, um, and, and I'll just, just uh, pursue one thread in, in the book on, uh, you mentioned the importance of personhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's interesting with, it, with regard to FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act. It uses the term in the statute, person. And, and that is, any person can submit down. a request. I'm going to take a note. But yeah. that was quick, that was understood to mean, has been interpreted to mean, um, legal persons as well as so human persons, so corporations, and sure. so uh, uh, and so the door was open to corporate capture of FOIA, mm. which is so so one set of reforms people uh, have thought about are um, could you just charge corporate requesters much more? Uh, maybe not ban them. You know, st- there, there may be good reasons why they want to submit FOIA requests. We don't we don't want to totally get rid of them. But but um, uh, one reason to think that that might be plausible is. They pay only a tiny fraction of the government's costs when they are many people. Even though they're a yeah. new corpus, I get the language. Yeah. yeah, there are so many of us at once. So you would think that the the ways in which they're engaged would, would be magnified. 
and monetarily especially. Yeah, and, and, and they're just. But that's the, not enough. And they're different. But yeah, yeah, they're not. Yeah. You know, the 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 people who created FOIA had in mind, you know, the kind of enterprising journalist and the crusading civic reformer. Mm-hmm. That's who was going to be empowered by FOIA. Yeah. Um, and maybe Congress itself, you know, looking into the presidency. Um, the idea that commercial requesters just seeking narrow um, financial gain would be, you know, the ones to dominate FOIA is is not at all in keeping with the original yeah. uh, vision of it. So, um, so you could think about playing with distinguishing real people from, yeah. you know, corporate persons uh, within the structure of open government law. That's that's one way to go. Um, and then, and then, you know, some people are rethinking. Congressional transparencies comes up with the impeachment discussion we just had. It was also in the 1970s that Congress became much more open, um, and uh, it's also around that time that negotiation began to break down, and that body in Congress became much more gridlocked. Sure, and sure. so, um, you could think about again. This have to be done very carefully and in a limited fashion. I don't want to romanticize the old smoke-filled rooms, but you could think about allowing Congress a little more breathing room too, to have some. Uh, uh, lack of openness in some of the uh, phases of the legislative process. And it's definitely something to think about. Look, as we, as I literally try to use these these next seven months to, to get in Congress myself, I mean, half of the work of this show is trying to extract the latest and greatest ideas that, that you all have, and, you know, just everyone in academia to see what do we take. I mean, we, we are trying to be intentional about going to D.C. and innovating. And I think there are a lot of shareholders there. Um, I'm going to implicate my incumbent and say that that is all he is. Um, you know, he fought for eight years to get there. He's finally there. He hasn't written a single policy, of which I think is ridiculous. So, yeah, we want to know what we can leverage to m- make that body function better to the point where it actually can incentivize bringing people together. Because I think the most dangerous thing that exists right now is that the radical transparency that is upon us is is dividing us because there is a a desperation that was already there. So if you're being served and I'm yeah. not I'm yeah. like I'm I'm being hurt because I'm not being yeah. served, which may not be the case. And it, it builds a, a further void between us, which and, is dangerous. And, and it's a, it creates a kind of vicious cycle, I think, where yeah. we don't trust the people in Congress. Yeah. And so we feel we need to see more of what they're up to yes. precisely because we don't trust them. Uh, but then the fact that we see everything doesn't allow them to cut certain deals that may actually be in the public interest or go against their party's base totally. in the Republican situation. So there, there are, which then reinforces our disenchantment, our disappointment. And, uh, and so, um, we've, we've gotten into a, into a, um, this kind of vicious circle and it's hard to break out of it, but, but, uh, de-romanticizing transparency, thinking about it's just one tool of many, keeping an eye on the broader democratic and social justice aims, I think is at least conceptually where we need to be. Well, on that note, I mean, everyone, uh, if you want to get nerdy about finding a workaround to issues with information or FOIA more specifically, get the book uh, Troubling Transparency. And um, the new mixtape that's coming out from David is going to be Managing Transparency. That's later, though. We'll, we'll get to that on the station later. Well, David, thank you. Thanks thank, for joining thank you. us. Thank you. Thank you. We'll we'll do this again soon.